As I said earlier, we're going to speak somewhat of heaven this morning. And to do that, we're going to go back to the story of Mary and Martha. But this time, not in chapter 11 of John. Open with me instead to the book of Luke, chapter 10. And there we see yet another episode in the life of these two sisters, Mary and Martha. Chapter 10 of the Gospel of Luke. And let me read to you, beginning at verse 38 to the end of the chapters, just a few verses. Keep in mind that Mary and Martha, as well as Lazarus, were friends of Jesus Christ. And uh, if you read through the Gospels, you see that Jesus Christ spent a good amount of time in their home. He was, they were just outside of Jerusalem. It reads this way, verse 38. Now as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary, who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teachings. But Martha was distracted with much serving. And she went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things. But one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. And this morning I want to lay emphasis on those last two verses. But one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. These two sisters, Mary and Martha, I think are the poster faces for two types of religion. One is contemplative religion and one is active religion. Which one do you practice most? You don't have to tell me, but I hope you identify for yourself. Which kind of a Christian are you? Are you the get-it-done Christian, or are you, let me think about it, and consider the words of Christ kind of Christian? Well, here you see Martha, as you can tell from what we just read. Martha is the practicing religion sort of believer. She's very active. And of course, with all that activity, there's quite a few distractions. But she's the kind of person who says, I have to get the job done There's things that need to be done in the name of Christ. I will fulfill the ministry call. That's the kind of mentality she has. Uh, She is full, and and her agenda is long, and there's quite a bit of activity going on. In fact, as you can see here in the text, Martha's rather overwhelmed. But she is looking for ways in which she can meet the needs of others. Is that you? You like to help. You like to see the needs of others being fulfilled, met. And then there is, of course, the contemplative religion, and that is Mary. Mary has a laser-focused attention on the words of Jesus Christ. Here she is living in the moment, sitting at the feet of Christ. She has a singleness of heart. And so she sits there, quietly listening at the feet of Christ, and she thinks about her future in the life, in this life, in Christ. Contemplative religion. 
Now, both are necessary. Would you agree? We need people who are doers. We also need people who are thinkers. We need people who are doers, but we also need people who will contemplate the Word of God. The truth is, is that both are necessary, not just of a group, but of every individual. Every Christian needs to be both, the doer and the contemplative person, the active believer, as well as the believer who contemplates the words of God. You see, a life that is purely set on contemplation will soon discover that the room, the house, is completely in disarray because you sat there and just meditated on the words of God. Of course, on the other hand, the person who is purely active, oh, I believe, and therefore there's so much I need to get done, that person will soon discover that his, her soul, will be in complete disarray. And that person is going to walk away thirsty for some meaning and significance, for truth. That person is going to walk away at the end of the day unfulfilled, even though that person was very active. The challenge in a Christian life is to know when to do which. But both are essential. Both are essential. But the priority is this one, the contemplative religion. Better yet, the contemplative Christian. I try not to use the word religion because religion really doesn't mean much to us today. Today, when we use the word religion, we're talking about going to church and and, and doing nice things and thinking about God. That that really doesn't get you very far. Religion really is man-made Uh, Religion is really man trying to find God, when in reality what we see in the scriptures is that God has found us. So we really don't need religion. So when I say religion, I'm not talking about religion in that sense. When when I talk about religion, I'm trying to convey the idea of your faith in Jesus Christ, your knowledge, your experience, your relationship with Christ. And in the Christian life, in that Christian religion, Being the contemplative Christian is the priority. And let me explain why. Contemplation is meditation. Um, By meditation, I'm not talking about oming your way through the day in a yoga posture. No, I'm talking about thinking, considering what the Word of God is and what do you believe. You see, you all believe something. The question is, what do you believe? And what do you believe about the Word of God? And the contemplative Christian is the one who thinks about what she, what he is believing and considers the truth of God as a foundation for what you believe. And as a result of what you believe, that should lead you into some significant busyness. It should lead into your activity. Your activity does not lead you to what you believe, but rather the other way around. What you believe, what you know about God should lead you into becoming the active Christian that you are. What you do should be based on what you believe. Otherwise, all your activity will be nice, it will be kind, it will be social, it will be energetic, but that's it. It will have no value for the kingdom of God if it's not grounded in the principles of God. I'm glad there's nice people out there. I'm glad there's people who do a lot of good things, who share money with charities, and who do all sorts of social good. Makes life here on this earth that much more pleasant and easier. 
But my friends, they are not doing anything for the kingdom of God if it's not grounded in their knowledge of Christ. They're simply helping mankind, which is nice, but it's not doing anything for God. Well, let's take a look at Mary's contemplation this morning. I know I said I want to talk about heaven, but we're going to begin by taking a look at Mary's contemplation. Again, here we have two sisters, Mary and Martha. The name Mary comes from the Hebrew Miriam. And to our knowledge, it means something along the line of bitter. It's not exactly the nicest idea for a name, is it? Mary, bitter. The Latin version is Maria. We've all met a Maria, right? Many Marias. Where I grew up, if you ever go into an alleyway and yell out Maria, not just one girl came out. I assure you that. There's Mary, and then there's a sister, Martha. Martha is not as a common name as Mary. It's an Aramaic name, and it simply means lady. So you have Mary, and you have Martha. And of course, as we read earlier from chapter 11 of John, they have a brother named Lazarus. And uh, Lazarus was given a new lease on life, literally, as we read. And here in this chapter, 10 of Luke, you see Mary sitting at the feet of Jesus Christ. Martha's busy. Mary is sitting and listening. There's a, a particular readiness in Mary to hear the words of Jesus Christ. This, my friends, is contemplative faith, contemplative Christianity. And as she sits there at the feet of... When was the last time you sat at the feet of anybody? As an adult, there's here a sense of submission and saying, Lord, I'm waiting for you to guide me. There's a particular longing to hear the words of Christ. She is placing herself under the words of Christ, under the truths of Christ as she listens. Now, she has all week long been listening to everybody else, just like we do. She has been inundated all week long with religion and speculation, rituals, assumptions, and interpretations by all those people who surrounded her. But now she's going to hear the very words of Jesus Christ, God himself, the master teacher, the father of all truth. And she wants to hear as she's listening. Meanwhile, her sister Martha, she was doing something good, very valuable, in fact. She was providing for the comfort of Jesus Christ, and even for the entertainment of Christ and whoever else came into the room with him. And that was very important. And indeed, you see here, Martha is rather respectful of our Lord Jesus. She provided what she thought was the proper care for somebody who came to visit in her house. And she wanted to serve him. She wanted to do what was right by him. She wanted not only to get it right, she wanted to be a person who was honoring Christ. So what does she do? She goes all out and she serves as best as she could possibly do. She wanted to be exact. She wanted to please. She was not going to in any way skimp on her hostess etiquette. She served well. Notice something that I think just jumps out of this page here. I think you've seen it already. Notice here that it is the daily affairs of life that get in the way of us listening to Christ. 
In fact, it is the daily affairs of life that actually become a snare if they begin to hinder you from knowing Christ better. And we've all been there. Some of you are there right now because as you're listening, you're thinking of what needs to get done. Monday's coming. The everyday, the everyday events of life can be a snare if they hinder us from knowing better the things of Christ, the truth of Christ. They steal us from God's word. And they replace our heart's desire with what seems to be pressing and urgent. Oh, i got to get that done. I'll talk to Jesus later. I have to see that through. I'll listen to Christ another time. And notice here, Martha is actually getting angry at her sister Mary. And in verse 40, she approaches Jesus Christ. And she says, tell my sister to get up and do something. I'm doing all the work. My sister won't listen to me, but maybe she'll listen to you, Jesus. Can you tell her to come help? The drinks are still in the kitchen. The deviled eggs haven't come out. <laughs> there are no coasters under the glasses. The, food are, the food's getting cold. And my sister's just sitting there at your feet, listening. And look at how Christ answers her. He says, Martha, Martha. And whenever the name is repeated, you know, that's just an emphatic expression. Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things, many portions of food. And then Christ said, Mary has chosen the good portion. She's chosen the good portion. She set aside all the felt needs, and she addressed instead her real needs, her spiritual needs. It's not that felt needs are not valuable. You know, if you're hungry, that's a felt need. And you need to feed your hunger. If you're tired, that's a felt need. You need to rest. There are many felt needs that need to be addressed on a regular basis. But there's a priority. And Mary is demonstrating what that priority is. And here it is. Knowing Christ, knowing the words of Christ, worshiping Christ, is the priority over all those other needs that I face from day to day, day after day. Uh, those needs are real, but they're temporal. And as you well know, they're coming back tomorrow. And Mary's instead addressing her spiritual needs. She's setting aside what are the obvious needs for the less obvious needs, her spiritual needs, the, the needs she has within her soul. The, the need in you that says, I don't know what's missing and then you realize oh it's christ is missing that voice in your own heart you say why is it that other people seem so happy and i'm not it's because you've been addressing all your physical needs your temporal needs but you're neglecting your spiritual need christ himself you go to bed dissatisfied routinely well, Mary did not focus on these temporal needs, but rather she focuses on her eternal needs. Mary did not focus on the things that will, look at verse 42, things that will be taken away from her. Uh, 
better yet, Mary did not focus on the things that she will be taken away from. You see, all these temporal needs that we face from day to day, you got to pay the bills, got to make sure there's, there, there, there's oil in the heating system, you got to make sure there's gas in the car, you got to make sure. There's so many things we got to make sure of from day to day. All those things are one day going to vanish. Those are needs we face today, and they seem so pressing and so urgent, but really, what is pressing and urgent is what your soul longs for. It's not that those things are not important. They are. But there's something even more important, and that's the truth of God residing in your soul and breeding, growing in your life. Mary knew that, and that's why she decided she was not going to help serve her sister. Rather, she was going to take in the words of Jesus Christ. One day, all these needs you face from day to day are no longer going to be here. They're no longer going to be a part of your life. You won't have to care about them again. But the truth is, nothing will ever separate you from the truths of God. Those are here to stay, and they will be carried into eternity. And you know how long eternity is? It's forever and ever and ever, and ever, and ever, and ever, and ever. And add a few more. Those needs are going to be with you forever. And Mary was contemplative because she wanted to know about those things that will be with her forever. And so Christ said, Mary has chosen the good portion which will not be taken away from her. You see, Mary, unlike her sister Martha, had a love for God, an interest in the kingdom of God. She had a concern for food for her soul. She had a thirst for truth. And therefore, Mary gave up her time and she gave up her heart to Jesus Christ. And she contemplated the words of Jesus Christ. Mary was not simply ecstatic that Jesus Christ was in her presence or that she was in the presence of Christ. She wasn't simply ecstatic because Christ was in her home, but rather she was ecstatic because Christ was speaking to her truths of life. The same truths we read here in the scriptures. In fact, we have more truth here than Mary ever had. We have more inscribed to us here than Mary ever knew. Words of life. And this good portion that would not be taken away from her is hope. Hope for today, hope for the future, hope for eternity. That's not going to be taken away from her, Martha. Leave her there. She's doing the right thing. It doesn't seem like the right thing right now. But Martha, it is. Trust me. The hope is not going to be taken away from her, and neither is this portion, her devotion to know Jesus Christ and live for him. We're not going to take that away from her, Martha. And Martha, we are not going to take away from her a desire for eternal life. Leave that be, Martha. Don't try to take that away from your sister. The Bible never offers to us, maybe you've noticed, 
The Bible never offers to us a drink from shallow waters. A fellow by the name of Morrison, I believe, wrote an article. I put it in your worship folder. You should read that. Have you noticed that never does God's word offer to us some sort of trivial positive thoughts? Rather, the Bible offers to us words that transform us. It's never shallow waters. It's always deep waters. Sometimes so deep, we're afraid to drink from it. The Bible never offers us shallow life tips, how to make your life better. No, no. Rather, the Bible gives us truths that will take you to the cross. The Bible does not suggest simply on how to improve yourself, but rather the Bible tells us how you can have a new life, how you can be a different person, a new person. And so Mary comes to Jesus Christ, and she does not want to drink from shallow waters. She wants to drink from deep waters. And so she sits at the feet of Christ, and she soaks it all in. She soaks it all in. What's Martha doing? She's listening from a distance, but you know she's distracted. She's got food to put out on the table. She's got to make sure the napkins are just right. That's good. It's important, but not as important as the words of Christ. We need to learn how to prioritize our lives. Well, let's talk this morning a little bit then about the life that Mary longed for as she sat there at the feet of Christ. She longed for eternal life. Let's talk a little bit about heaven. Let's talk about contemplating eternal life. And for that, let's turn over to Psalm 27. In your Old Testament, we're going to take a look at a couple, three actually, Psalms. And the first one is chapter 27 and verse 4. Psalm 27, verse 4. This is how it reads. Let me know later on whether or not this verse resonates with you. This is what the psalmist David writes. He says, One thing I have desired of the Lord, that, that, will, that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to behold the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. One thing I will ask of the Lord. Uh, Charles Spurgeon once said that you can judge a man by what he groans after. What do you groan? What, what do you long for? At the end of the day, at the beginning of the day, what is it that you want? What are you groaning for? That's who you are. That's who you are. Here, David says that there's one thing over everything else that he longs for, everything else that he groans for. He wants this so overwhelmingly that he says, I will seek this. I will seek after this. And, and he asks God for it. And this is it. It's one thing, but it's divided into three parts. It's one petition and it involves three benefits. Here it is, the first one. Psalm 27, 4. He wants to be in God's presence. That I may dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Number two, he says, this is what I'm seeking for. This is what my heart longs for. To behold the beauty of the Lord. To be able to see the majesty of God with my own eyes. And number three, to inquire. 
to have my questions answered in the presence of God in his temple. What do you groan for? Does David's words resonate with you? Nobody's shaking their head yes, but I'll say nobody's shaking their head no. So, look at Psalm 63, Psalm 63, 8. In Psalm 27, the psalmist is longing for eternity. Why? Because he knows that he's just passing through. He's not going to be here all that long. At best, this is his temporary home. Now, look at Psalm 63, 8. The psalmist writes there, My soul clings to you, your right hand upholds me. And I would say this is Mary. When Mary's sitting at the feet of Christ, this is what I imagine she's thinking. She is thinking, My soul clings to you, Christ. I stretch out my arms and I cling to you. You are what I want. One more psalm, Psalm 73 and verse 8, rather verse 25, 73, 25. Psalm 73, verse 25, it reads this way. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. Wow, those are big words, right? There's nothing on earth that I desire besides you. In other words, it's not that I don't desire other things. It's that in comparison to my desire for you, I only desire you. My desire for you is so great, those other things pale. You know, this is the trap of the earth. That we have so much, and boy, do we have so much. So much we can... Gain so much we can purchase, so much that could be ours. We are, compared to the rest of the world, truly all millionaires. The poorest one here is richer, far richer than most of the world. Here's the trap of this earth we long more for what this world offers than we long for God Himself or what Christ offers. So much so that we consider eternity in God's presence as something that, well, I guess it's the preferred state. Obviously, we're not going to live here forever. 75, 80, 83 years. And so instead of saying, I'm longing to be in the presence of God, I said, well, I have to be somewhere. I might as well be heaven. So I prefer heaven because I can't stay here. But I would rather just stay here and get more. That's how many of us think. Heaven is not something we long for. Heaven is rather something we have to choose, either heaven or hell. No such thing as purgatory. So, of course, I'm going to take heaven. (laughs) That's only common sense. But do you long for heaven? Is it something you actually say, Lord, I can't wait to be there? Obviously, you have to wait, but it's very hard to wait. You actually want to be in the presence of God. I dare say 
that the thoughts of Mary, the thoughts in Mary's head as she's sitting here are, are these. There's nothing on this earth I desire besides you, O Christ. Martha was thinking elsewhere. Listen to this quote from C.S. Lewis. It's, I think, an imperative for our Christian thinking. This is what he said. Aim for heaven and you will and you will get earth. Aim for heaven and you will get earth. Aim for earth and you will get neither heaven or earth. Aim for heaven and you'll get earth. Aim for earth and you'll get neither heaven or earth. My friends, groan for what is best. Groan for what is glorious. Groan in your souls for what is eternal, sublime, and supreme. Groan for the glory of God. Groan to know him more. Groan in yourself. Groan and say, Lord, I want more of you. If there's anything on this earth that I want, it is to be more knowledgeable of you and to one day be in your presence. Grown for his glory. Learn to think this way. It's what we read earlier. One thing I have desired of the Lord that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to behold the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. Now, no one can be forced to think this way. But keep in mind that it does not happen by accident. You have to learn to groan for God's glory. Well, let me share with you the story of one particular man who was so focused on his knowledge of God, on his relationship with Christ and eternity. His name is John Chrysostom, and he was one of the early church fathers. He lived in the 4th century, that's around 300s A.D., and he was quite the preacher, as one of the early church fathers, he was counted on to lead the church in his region, in his day. And he preached very strongly, in particular, against sin. And as he preached, many people were offended because, as you well know, nobody wants to hear the words, you are a sinner. But that did not stop John Chrysostom. He preached and he preached and he preached. And having offended so many people, among them was actually the uh, Roman uh, emperor's, uh, Arcadius's wife. Um, she was highly offended. And, and so eventually, the emperor actually brought Chrysostom in, into his court. And he told him, listen, John, you got to stop doing this because my wife does not appreciate what you're saying. And she's not alone, but I'm tired of you offending my wife. You must desist. In response, Chrysostom said, Sire, I can't. He says, well, if you don't, I will banish you. <laughs> so John Chrysostom said, Sire, you cannot banish me, for the world is my father's house. <laughs> you see, he's thinking eternity. So the emperor said, well, then I will slay you. And Chrysostom responded, no, but you cannot, for my life is hid with Christ in God. 
And now the emperor is rather angry. Arcadius is his name. And he says, well, then I will confiscate all your treasure. To which John Chrysostom replied, sire, that cannot be either. My treasures are in heaven where none can break through and steal. And so in even greater anger, Arcadius threatens, then I will drive you from man and you will have no friends left. This was his final desperate warning to which Chrysostom answers, that you cannot do either. For I have a friend in heaven who has said, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. And indeed, this early church father was arrested. He was banished. First to Armenia and then to a place called Piteus on the Black Sea. And he never actually reached that cell because he died en route. But notice something here. His banishment and his death do not disprove his claims. Why? Because the things that Chrysostom valued most were not here on this earth. The things he valued most were eternal. Things that the emperor could not take away. And he did not. In heaven, we will meet John Chrysostom. This man knew that his godly investments here on this earth would be his profit in eternity. And he longed to be there. He longed for eternity. Again, C.S. Lewis, aim at heaven and you will have earth thrown in. Aim at earth and you'll get neither. Neither. Heaven is God's sovereign promise to all those who have entrusted their lives to Jesus Christ, to all those who profess him as Lord and Savior by faith. And if that is you, my friends, then live today, not with the cares and the urgencies of this life, but prioritize Jesus first, eternal life first, his truth matters first. And everything else is a distant second. Live with anticipation of heaven. As you can imagine, a lot, a lot of people ask me questions about heaven, and, and there are certain questions people ask, uh, well, often enough, and, and one of them is, will there be memories in heaven? Uh, what is heaven going to be like? Are we going to have memories in heaven? Will we remember this life in heaven? Well, before I say anything else, let me say this. It's what somebody else told me, and, and I, I like the way they, the person put it. Keep in mind that heaven is going to be more than life here on earth, not less. Heaven is going to be more than what we have here on this earth. More life than what we have here, not less. And so are we going to have memories? In other words, when I get to heaven, and let's say you get there first, will I say, hey, I know you. Will I remember you? Will I remember my wife? I don't know. 
I don't know. I do know this, that in heaven there will be no sin. So it's hard to imagine living in eternity and being impacted by the sinful memories, memories that contain sin, the brokenness of this world. But keep in mind, heaven is going to be more, not less, than what we have here. Also, keep in mind that in Hebrews chapter 12, beginning of verse 1, we're told that we are surrounded by a great cloud of witness, that is, people who have gone before us, people who are, are witnesses of how we are living our Christian life, people who are testimonies of how we should live our Christian life. And so I can say this, that in eternity, this is for sure, our relational ability will be amplified in heaven. Our relational ability, our, rela our ability to have relationships are going to be amplified in heaven. And people often ask, will there be marriage in heaven? And that's an easier one to answer because the Bible is very clear. And the answer is no. Matthew chapter 22, verse 30, it reads this way. For in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, referring to eternity in heaven. They will not marry, nor will they be given in marriage, but they will be like the angels in heaven. And so when the Bible says we're going to be like the angels in heaven, it's not talking about us having wings and playing harps. No, it's talking about in the sense of marriage. Angels don't get married, neither will we in heaven. And for many people, this is a rather troubling reality and very disappointing. What? I will not be with a person. Some of you have recently been married. And you're thinking, hmm. This is very disappointing. But keep in mind what I said earlier. Heaven is going to be more, not less, of what we have here in this life. In other words, heaven will far exceed what we know here. And so don't be afraid of what the scriptures say. Our relational ability will be amplified in eternity. Consider the beauty of heaven, my friends. And maybe when you begin to consider the beauty of heaven, you'll long for eternity more so. Broadly speaking, heaven is going to be a place of perfection, a place where there will be no pain, there will be no suffering, there will be no sorrow. And the Bible uses various metaphors to describe heaven just to help us better understand and appreciate eternity. If you look at John chapter 14, it tells us that we're going to be granted mansions to live in. In Revelation 20, 21, 21, 21, it says that we are going to walk on streets of gold like transparent glass. That does, just doesn't make much sense to us, right? Streets of gold like transparent glass. There's a sense of beauty and richness there. That's going to be eternity. That's heaven. In Hebrews chapter 12, we are told that we are being built together so that one day in eternity we will live in harmonious worship of God. And in Revelation chapter 7, beginning of verse 9, we're told that all nations will live at peace, in peace with one another, all people groups. We're going to live peacefully together. Notice that Jesus Christ continues to be a Jewish man. When, when the Bible says he's coming back, he's coming back as a Jewish man, which tells me that I will continue to be a man in heaven, and women, you will continue to be women in heaven. So there is gender, but drastically different. 
You know, one of the things I consider when I think about heaven is that in heaven there will be no sin. Take a look with me in Romans chapter 8 and verse 22. Romans chapter 8, verse 22, and then verse 23. There will be no sin whatsoever in eternity, in God's presence. This is how it reads, Romans 8, 22. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. As you well know, the world is groaning. And boy, is it groaning. People are groaning. Earth itself is groaning. <laughs> Just recently, I so, saw so, uh, several volcanic eruptions or volcanoes beginning to erupt in different parts of the world. And I think that's just a small picture of the groaning of this earth. Obviously, the law of thermodynamics is at play, which says that matter breaks down. That's all the result of sin. There's a brokenness in this world. But it's not just the planet, not just the universe that breaks down. Uh, we are breaking down. Physically, trust me, as I grow older, things that never bothered me before now do. Our bodies are breaking down. But it's not just ourselves physically, even inwardly, we groan. And left to ourselves, our soul deteriorates. It groans. It breaks down because of sin. But in heaven, all that groaning is going to stop. Because there will be no sin in heaven. There will be no breaking down. There will be no building up. Because you will be perfect. You can't improve on perfection. It will be perfect. No sin in heaven. But let me take you to one last point this morning. Take a look in the epistle of 1 John chapter 3, verse 2. 1 John 3, 2. All the way to the far right of your Bible, just before the very end of your Bible, Revelation chapter, rather, 1 John chapter 3, verse 2. We're talking about longing for heaven, right? Look at what it reads there. 1 John 3, 2. Dear friends, now we are children of God. And what we will be has not yet been made known. But we know that when he appears, referring to Christ, when he appears, we shall be like him. For we shall see him as he is. Heaven is going to present a drastically different you. But you will still be you. A drastically new you. Here we're told we will be like Christ. Now, keeping that in mind, turn over to Galatians chapter 5. Galatians chapter 5 in your New Testament, beginning at verse 22 and verse 23. Galatians 5, 22 and 23. Record for us the fruit of the Holy Spirit. The fruit of the Holy Spirit is exactly what the Holy Spirit is working on everybody who is a believer. The Holy Spirit does this in cooperation with you. In other words, the Holy Spirit is not going to force you to become these things, but rather as you submit to God in obedience, God works these things in you. 
If you do not submit to God in obedience, God will not work these things in you. But if you are seeking Christ, if you are seeking to be loyal to him and follow his word, if you are contemplating his truth, if you are sitting at his feet, the Holy Spirit will produce this in you. Look at chapter 5, Galatians 22, 23. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Part of being like Christ is that we would possess these attributes. Here's a little truth that I, I think we don't consider often enough. What will heaven be like? Heaven will be filled with people who are filled with love, perfect joy, and peace, and patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. You will be surrounded by people who have these attributes. That's good living. You will have all these attributes. That's great living. You see, the very things that makes life such a, a challenge here are people who don't possess these attributes. What makes life such a drudgery? When we lack these assets, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. In heaven, you will have all these attributes. In heaven, everybody around you will have these attributes. Why will heaven be so heavenly? One, because we will be in the presence of God. Number two, we will have fully the fruit of the Spirit. Those are the two overwhelming realities of eternity. The presence of God and the fulfillment of the fruit of the Spirit in each and every single one of us. That's what makes it so good. That's what makes it so worth longing for. Now let's go back to Mary and Martha as I wrap everything up here. Going back to Luke chapter 10, you see that Martha did what comes very naturally to most people. There's a job to get done, and so she does it. She's very busy about it. There's an urgency. There's a need. And so she wants to meet that need. Meanwhile, her sister Mary responded how? Quite the opposite. It did not come very naturally. She paid attention to her inner longings, the longings of her soul. She longed for truth. She wanted to be in the presence of Christ. And so she was hanging on every word that came through the lips of Jesus Christ. She had a longing for eternity that her sister Martha did not. And Mary's priorities, her portion, will never be taken from her. This is what I'm going to ask you to do this week. I want you to take time to contemplate God's word. Seven days. Even before you start the day, open his word and read it. You know, we've been doing a Bible study with elected officials in our county. As a result, what we did is we purchased Bibles for everyone that comes. We had their names inscribed on a cover. And there's one fellow who comes, and you can tell he's been reading the Word of God. He's an elected official. 
You could see that he's been using his word, the, the Bible. And he said, I never knew that was in there. Now I finally understand. And another one said, I read this now every morning just so that I could make it through my day. Otherwise, I'm completely lost. I don't know how to vote. I don't know how to make decisions unless I first read from the Word of God. If that's true of them, how much more true it needs to be of us. So let me, let me encourage you to do this this week. This is your homework. For seven days this week, begin by reading a portion of the Bible. I would suggest the Gospel of Mark or the Gospel of John. It doesn't have to be a whole chapter. It could be two verses. I would suggest a little more. But just start by reading God's word. Before you get in the car or go do whatever it is you need to do that day, start by reading the word of God. And then pray. It does not have to be an elongated prayer, but pray. Pray sincerely. Don't pray so you're thinking, well, I got that done, now I can move on. No. Pray. Speak to God. And see what the Lord does for you this week in your soul. It might just be another routine week externally. But internally, look to see what the Lord says and does within. Don't be the Martha. Yes, all that stuff has to get done. Thank you, Martha, for doing it. But there are priorities. God's truth. Contemplate eternity. Prepare for eternity. Long for eternity by longing for God's word. And let's see what he does. I look forward to hearing from you. I look forward to hearing from God. Let's pray. Our Lord and Savior, how good it is to know that you've given to us your written word. You have revealed your nature, your character, your promises, even our future here in these pages. We thank you, Lord, for the promise of eternity. And I pray, O oh Lord, that you will teach us even in good days, to long for eternity and to savor your truth, to sit in submission to your words and receive the guidance that you alone can give. Teach us, Lord, to long for your truth, to prioritize it, and to groan for eternity. In your name we pray. Amen.